The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthcare.com. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, and we would like to thank our official sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making the show possible. And we welcome and thank our listeners for joining us today. Today, we have our guest, Dr. Katarina Oniro, a clinical assistant professor within the NYU Division of Gastroenterology and board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine, along with Dr. Paul Feuerstadt, a clinical instructor of medicine in the Division of Digestive Disease in Yale New Haven Hospital, also board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine. It is our pleasure to welcome both doctors to discuss C. diff infections, the what, where, and how. Welcome both Dr. Onetto and Dr. Forstat. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having us. Yep, we're happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of C. Dysphoris and more. And we are really interested in learning more about C. diff infections and the what, where, and how. And we're going to begin with asking Dr. Paul Feuerstadt, uh, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment and explain to our listeners, what is a C. diff infection? Yeah, that's an important question, Nancy. C. difficile infection is a bacterial infection. And bacterial infections are, are very, very common, and we see them all the time in lots of patients. But when you want to understand the infection, and we're going to spend the next uh, hour or so discussing the infection, it's important to provide a context and provide an understanding of the infection so we can understand some of the other things that we'll possibly be discussing. When you do that, you need to understand that a bacteria typically has phases of infection, and C. difficile is no different. C. difficile has two main phases. One phase, called the spore phase, is like a cocoon, and that's the phase that allows the infection to spread. That phase is resistant to gastric acid and resistant to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. So what does that mean really in English? What is the first line of defense of our immune system? It's actually our skin, because our skin protects our internal organs and access to our body. But what gets lost in the shuffle a little bit is that the second line of defense of our immune system is actually the acid in our stomach. And one of the main functions of the acid in our stomach is to sterilize things that get swallowed. But I just told you that the spore is resistant to gastric acid. So that's one mechanism that C. difficile, this bacteria, can actually gain access to our body. Now, the spore phase does not 
cause some of the symptoms that are most commonly associated with C. difficile, that actually comes from the other phase, the vegetative phase. And the vegetative phase is the phase of infection that releases little molecules and little particles within the colon and within the digestive tract that stimulates changes that causes the diarrheal syndrome most commonly associated with C. difficile infection. So the classic process that occurs when somebody acquires this infection is that they actually swallow the sporophase, as gross as that is. We swallow the sporophase. It is resistant to our gastric acid. It gets to our small bowel. And then in that warm environment, it actually converts to the vegetative phase, and it starts to multiply and divide and multiply some more. And it builds an army as it gets to the colon. But I'm a gastroenterologist, and I think the colon is a brilliant organ. And the mechanism here, where the colon actually fights off C. difficile, is actually quite brilliant. The colon has its own groups of bacteria that can fight off C. difficile infection. So when that army of foreign invaders approaches the large bowel or the colon, the bacteria in the colon can actually quell the infection and keep it under control and fight it off, sometimes actually independent of your blood-borne immunity. Usually it's in, co- in conjunction with the blood-borne immunity, but sometimes it's on its own. Now, classically, the question is, well, what weakens those bacteria in the colon? And the answer to that are antibiotics, classically. Things like amoxicillin, ampicillin, clarithromycin, fluoroquinolones, and cephalosporins. These antibiotics weaken these bacteria, deplete them, and create an environment that's welcoming for C. difficile to take over. And lo and behold, in the right set of circumstances, the C. difficile approaches the colon or the large bowel, and the C. difficile can take over. Now, the way that this infection manifests can be multiple different ways. I mentioned before the diarrheal syndrome, and that is the most frequent way that this bacteria causes changes to our digestive tract, and that's associated with some cramping abdominal pain, frequent stools, occasionally fevers. But this infection can also cause constipation. It can cause something called a pseudo-obstruction, where your bowel just goes to sleep and doesn't push things forward. It can even cause something called a megacolon. Megacolon sounds like an a, uh, action figure or, or some sort of a superhero, but actually a megacolon occurs when your large bowel starts to widen and dilate, and that's actually a very dangerous thing and sometimes requires even surgical interventions to correct. So when you ask what C. difficile is, there's a whole wealth of information there. Yes, there certainly is. And Dr. Poirstat, we thank you so much for uh, providing us with a thorough explanation of what a C. diff infection is and all the different phases and and the um, outcomes of this infection. Um, there's a lot to be said for uh, acquiring a C. diff infection. And it's a pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Onetto into this discussion. And uh, Dr. Onetto, how can we decrease our risk of C. difficile infections? Right. I think, uh, Nancy, when we think about acquiring this type of infection, one has to always consider that there are two factors involved. One is, and both were mentioned by Dr. Feuerstadt here, but one of them is the gut micro- microflora, the organisms that already live 
in the colon. And you need to have an abnormal or disrupted or I guess one could say a weakened um, gut flora to acquire this because the gut flora is really the first barrier against infections. Maybe it's not the first barrier, but it's a very important barrier against infectious agents. And then the other part is the actual exposure to the C. diff, to this bacterium. Uh, The most common uh, disruption, cause for disruption of the gut flora are antibiotics. And all antibiotics really can increase the risk um, for acquiring uh, this infection. So one very important prevention is to try not to use a lot of antibiotics. I think uh, in the recent years, both doctors and also the general public have become more aware of all the risks that are posed by excessive antibiotic use. So we are trying to give fewer antibiotics and try to have really an active bacterial infection before prescribing antibiotics. We used to give a lot of antibiotics, unfortunately, for infections that are really viral, and antibiotics don't really kill uh, viruses, so there was really no point in doing that. Or sometimes, still now, antibiotics are used for as a preventative measure as opposed to a treatment. So avoiding that is a very important part of preventing uh, C. diff. Um, there are, you know, as I said before, all antibiotics can increase the risk, but there are some, like the ones that Dr. Foyer had mentioned, uh, clindamycin and fluoroquinolones, that are very commonly used, also amoxicillin, that increase the risk even more than the average antibiotic. And the other part is the exposure to the C. diff, and one uh, really should try not to get exposed, but it's sometimes very difficult because it's not like you can see these tiny spores that can live in the environment for months. Um, They're very resilient. They're very difficult to kill. Only some very specific cleaners can get rid of them. So that's part of the problem is do we, are we doing everything we can to avoid that exposure? Exactly. And, and that's the whole thing, doing everything in our, on our part as patients and also as um, just individuals, even in healthcare providers, uh, working with the patients and all, everyone using good hand washing techniques and hand hygiene in every um, aspect really helps a lot. Exactly. So, that's very important because sometimes patients and doctors and nurses have this false sense of security of using things like Purell, these alcohol-based cleaners that are good for other infections, but not for C. diff. Exactly. And, and thank you so much for that. And um, antibiotic stewardship, that's another big topic. And that is being introduced in clinics, uh, hospitals, and uh, outpatient settings, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, a lot of different hospitals actually have antibiotic stewardship programs uh, that are boards of infectious disease, sometimes gastroenterology, internal medicine doctors that are limiting the usage of antibiotics to really the most indicated patients, the patients that are requiring these antibiotics most because there's, there's something called empiric antibiotic use, and that's where we think there might be an infection, and somebody just starts an antibiotic proactively to prevent the infection from spreading. But these antibiotic stewardship committees will actually decide which circumstances the risk outweighs the benefit or the benefit outweighs the risk of using these antibiotics so that really what we're doing is isolating the correct patients to receive antibiotics at the correct time. And that will reduce the risk of many things, including C. difficile infection, but also antibiotic-associated diarrhea. C. 
difficile infection is kind of a subset of antibiotic-associated diarrhea, but really all the other potential side effects of antibiotics. When we need to think about medications, we always think that medications were not designed to be taken by humans. We just know that the benefits outweigh the risks. So we've created these chemicals that have significant benefits, but there's always a risk associated with these sorts of things. Exactly. And thank you so much for that extra explanation there about antibiotic stewardship that a lot of individuals and a lot of our listeners are not aware of. And another way to decrease our risk of C. difficile is of course, taking good care of our health. Um, that's the number one. And a lot of patients and a lot of individuals who acquire C. diff infections, uh, we know, uh, even the C. diff survivors know, a, a lot of them were not even on a, uh, an antibiotic and acquired a C. diff infection. So it's, it's the kind of infection that uh, you don't always have to be on an antibiotic. Is that true? Absolutely. It, there are a number of patients now that we're seeing where we have, we find no risk factors. Patients who have not been at the hospital, who have not received antibiotics, sometimes who are young and healthy otherwise. So this has become a big public health problem. Exactly. Yeah, they actually ran a uh, cross-sectional study. The Centers for Disease Control ran a study in 2006 and in 2012 looking at where patients were presenting from with this infection. And interestingly enough, in 2006, 2% of the population were exactly what Dr. Onetto just alluded to. These patients were having no contact with medical care and having no risk factors, no antibiotic exposure, no relatives in nursing homes or hospitals. And in 2012, when they repeated the study, it went up threefold to 6%. We have no good explanation why patients are presenting in this way. Right. We know we don't. And thank you, Dr. Forrestat. And we're going to pause at this time uh, to take um, a minute for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Zonetto and Dr. Forrestat on C. difficile infections, the what, where, and how. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Join us on September 20th in Atlanta, Georgia for the fourth annual International Raising C. diff Awareness Conference and Health Expo. Visit the C. diff Foundation website at cdifffoundation.org for event details or contact the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 for additional information. Again, the website is cdifffoundation.org. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. We would like to welcome back Dr. Onetto and Dr. Feuerstadt. And before break, we were discussing the C. diff infections, the what, where, and how. Let's continue with our discussion and learn more about this infection. Um, Dr. Forrestat, you were discussing um, the patients most frequently who get C. diff infection. If you'd like to um, pick up where you left off, that would be wonderful. Sure, yeah. So what we were actually talking about were the patients that, that Dr. Onetto identified, which are people who didn't have any exposures to any of the uh, risk factors that we have already covered, but still got the infection. So that population is interesting, but really that's only 6% of the population. The larger portion of the population, 45%, had a, what's called a community onset of the infection. And what a community onset is, is the onset of symptoms of the infection either purely in the community or within the first 72 hours of hospitalization. And that is one cohort that's a very significant and large cohort. And then there are two other cohorts that I think require a, a, an explanation, and that is the 25% of people who present with C. diff typically present from skilled nursing facilities, and 24% typically present from hospitals or within hospitals. And the question is why? And Dr. Ronetta was really referring to antibiotic exposure and we spoke before about hand washing, but obviously in hospitals and in skilled nursing facilities, you have a large group of patients, typically who are uh, older on in age uh, and have multiple risk factors for infection, but also a lot of infection control things occur in hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. We spoke about alcohol-based hand sanitizers, which are actually being placed outside and inside most patient rooms. But what's most important to prevent spread of infection really is using soap and water. It's a matter of 15 full seconds of scrubbing the soap on your hands and washing your hands thoroughly with the water. There was one really interesting study that was performed about three years ago in the Journal of Hospital Epidemiology, which is uh, a little bit gross, but I think important to to make light of here. And what they did was they had a patient with C. diff uh, use the toilet, and then they actually flushed the toilet. And they flushed the toilet, and they swabbed at various distances from the toilet, the walls, the ceiling, the door jamb, and actually outside the room. And the answer for where C. diff went was everywhere. Now, if you think about a hospital and a skilled nursing facility, one of the things that hospitals and skilled nursing facilities don't have are toilet seat covers. And the reason for that is exactly this. It's believed that toilet seat covers can actually harbor infections and promote spread. But in this study, if they put a toilet seat cover down, the problem was completely wiped out. And then they would use things like Clorox-based sanitizers to cleanse the bowl, and the infection wouldn't spread. Well, in the hospital, like I said, that's not the case. You're not able to actually use a toilet seat cover. In addition, the flushing mechanism in the hospitals are usually really quite strong and sometimes actually scary. So this is one of the problems and one of the built-in situations that we face with hospitals and skilled nursing facilities, and that is really leaving patients prone to getting this infection and prone to spread of infection. 
Exactly. And that's also particularly important because we don't always know who has C. diff. I mean, it, there is some delay in diagnosing patients sometimes, confirming the diagnosis and isolating the patient. And all that time that goes by, all these precautions are really not being taken. Yeah, that's correct. It's actually interesting. Uh, one of the subsets, there's multiple types of C. difficile infection. But one of the subsets that people are most concerned about is actually the hypervirulent strain, the so-called NAP1BIO27 strain, 087078. These are all subtypes of C. difficile infection. And originally, when the, these hypervirulent strains, which are strains that are associated with worsened outcomes, defined by requiring either surgery or, unfortunately, actually patients ending up with mortality, when they originally isolated these, they thought that the basic science showed that these types of C. difficile were actually releasing more toxins, causing more, a more severe response from the body, and that was why the patients were ending up with worsened outcomes. But actually what they missed was that whenever these hyper, quote-unquote hypervirulent strains were being found, they were being found in epidemics. And Dr. Onetto alluded to this. What happens with the hypervirulent strains in reality is not so much that the patients are having a more vigorous response to the bacteria and having a worsened disease course, but actually the lead time between acquiring the infection and actually getting the manifestations of the infection is longer. Therefore, a patient could feel normal and share a room with somebody else, yet they could actually have the hypervirulent C. diff, have no manifestations of disease, spread the infection, and then once they start to get the manifestations, it's too late. And that's how the hypervirulent strains are hypothesized to spread more rapidly, therefore affecting more people who are more vulnerable. Exactly, exactly. What do you think, Dr. Foyer, said about the high number of patients who have this community-acquired type of C. diff I read, you know, you mentioned number 45% or a third, over a third of the patients who present with C. diff seem to not have an exposure to a nursing home or a hospital but be really community acquired. And of those patients, it seems like the vast majority of them have been exposed to other forms of medical facilities like offices and dentist offices and clinics. Um, I don't know what, what you think we should be doing for our ambulatory clinics and offices. Well, I think that the most important things are exactly what we've, we've discussed, which is proper hand hygiene, antimicrobial stewardship, making sure that when either dentist's offices or clinics or outpatient facilities use antibiotics, it is completely indicated. Yes. Really preventing, preventing infection, education is probably the most important thing. What we're doing today and our discussion today, getting the word out about this infection so that people understand that this is one of the top hospital-associated infections that we're seeing. Right. This is responsible for thousands of deaths every year. I mean, I don't want to scare our listeners, but we're talking about almost 30,000 uh, deaths a year just in this country alone. Exactly, and, and it's increasing. The, the study that, that uh, Katerina is referring to it was a study from the New England Journal of Medicine published in March of, of last year. But actually, that was an update from a study from four years before where both studies were estimating the number of people who died from complications from this infection, and that was about 30,000 last year. But believe it or not, four years before, the estimate was 14,000. So you're seeing a more than doubling of the estimate of number of people that are succumbing to this infection. And 
and that's with a lot more education and a lot more people understanding the infection. So it's a true epidemic that we're seeing. Yes, it certainly is. It's an epidemic level and uh, across the board and on a global level. Um, in the United States, as you um, had mentioned, uh, the percentage and how many thousands of patients are uh, passing away from uh, involvement and directly from the infection is, I think, 15,000. Um, but it's it's higher, um, it's higher in uh, Europe. Uh, they have their own um, calculations, and and yet in some parts of uh, England and, and Europe, they were able to actually reduce their amount of um, infections, C. diff infections being acquired. So we are, all are learning from each other, and, it, and like you both said, it's really education, getting the word out there, and and helping um, for individuals understand how to prevent this infection. Correct. Absolutely. I also tell my patients to wash their hands when they leave the office because you never know. There are patients that may be not diagnosed, and I do this as a patient myself. When I go to a medical office, I wash my hands, you know, really thoroughly when I'm leaving. Completely agreed. I do the same. <laughs> yep. I, I, I join you on that, <laughs> and, and we do. <laughs> so we know the preventive is... Um, uh, the hand washing and to the antibiotics and very interesting facts about the the toilet flushing. Um, yes, the the power flush at the hospital is uh, incredibly um, loud and, and forceful. Vigorous. Yes, vigorous uh, versus the flush everywhere else. And uh, we actually had put out an article from the CETA Foundation regarding to put this toilet seats at the home when you're you're dealing with C. diff infections at home uh, to put the toilet seats down because it does help uh, contain the spores from uh, being you know lifted in into the air and, and uh, you know attaching to their surroundings. So appropriate cleansing agents, the EPA-registered C. diff kill products are the best. Um, there's a list of those also on the, the website, which is the C. difffoundation.org. Um, in regards to the, I don't know if you want to start a, a, another topic, Dr. Forstat, on sure. how long um, the following up period to classify uh, the repeat episode of a C. difficile infection as a recurrence. That's a whole other topic with the reoccurring of C. diff. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the question of recurrence is actually a fairly controversial one, which, which one would think that it wouldn't be. But in reality, when, when one reviews the literature for, for the infection, they, found, they find that recurrences can be classified either within one month, two months, or three months of treatment of the infection. So it's something that really requires further thought. The most conservative, of course, would be three months, and that's what most studies are moving towards now. So when I have a patient who comes to me and says, okay, I'm treated, I'm feeling better, what next? What I say to them is, your first 30 days, you have about an 80% chance if you are going to recur that you are going to recur. And then within the next two months after that, or within the first three months after treatment, you have the other 20%. So usually I shake their hands after the first month. I say, congratulations, you're out of the big window. And then after three months, I usually get a hug. 
And that says, you know what, you're most likely clear of this infection. And if you get a repeat episode, you're most likely having a de novo or a new episode. Right, exactly. And we have seen that too. And we've heard about that. And we're going to stop right here and pause for a moment. And we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we return, we will continue our discussion with C. difficile infections, the what, where and how with Dr. Zonetto and Dr. Forrestat. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Join us on September 20th in Atlanta, Georgia for the fourth annual International Raising C. diff Awareness Conference and Health Expo. Visit the C. diff Foundation website at cdifffoundation.org for event details or contact the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 for additional information. Again, the website is cdifffoundation.org. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Corrella, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. We welcome back Dr. Zonetto and Feuerstadt. And before break, we were discussing with Dr. Feuerstadt the C. diff infection on how long to follow up period to classify uh, the repeated episodes of C. difficile infections. Um, Dr. Feuerstadt, what are the most, um, who is the most at risk for reoccurring C. difficile infections? Is there a certain type of patient or um, is there an individual that has more risk than others? Yeah, that's an important question that you're asking. And actually, the risk factors for recurrence are very similar to the risk factors for initial infection because to tease out the differences would be very, very challenging. And most of the studies that have tried to do this have looked back at data as opposed to looking forward. So really the risk factors for C. difficile infection in general, and therefore recurrence also, are age over 65, female gender, any sort of immune compromise. So diabetes, chronic kidney disease, HIV, solid organ transplant on immune suppression, inflammatory bowel disease on immune suppression, antibiotics we spoke about before, proton pump inhibitors. That's something that as a gastroenterologist, and uh, Dr. Ronetto also as a gastroenterologist, we basically put proton pump inhibitors in the water. 
<laughs> but in rea- we do, because a lot of patients that come and see us have some sort of dyspepsia or epigastric discomfort, and proton pump inhibitors help with reflux, they help with gastritis, but in reality, proton pump inhibitors are one of the strongest risk factors for this infection. Mm-hmm. And if you think back to what we were talking about before, and we were talking about the mechanism of this bacteria, I told you that if you swallow the vegetative phase, you would actually, you, the gastric acid in your stomach would wipe it out. But if you're on a proton pump inhibitor and your acid is reduced, there's a chance that that infection would get through. And originally, that was believed to be the cause of patients being at higher risk for C. difficile infection, being on proton pump inhibitors. However, in reality, recent studies have shown that that actually is not the cause or is not the most likely explanation. The most likely explanation is that the proton pump inhibitors affect those bacteria in your colon called the microbiome and in a way similar to antibiotics create an environment that's more welcoming to the infection. What are some other risk factors? Other risk factors include living in a skilled nursing facility as we alluded to before, living in a hospital, poor hand hygiene, indiscriminate antimicrobial use by the skilled nursing facility and the hospital, as well as other things like surgery and nasogastric tubes. Now, one of the things that I think is important to kind of make light of here is the age over 65. That's a general theme that's been put forward for patients being at risk for C. diff, but what I would implore the audience, both clinicians and patients, to think about is that this is not necessarily an infection of the elderly. Mm -hmm. One great study was published about three years ago, and it looked at individuals who were less than 50 years old, less than 50 years old, who are coming back from overseas with traveler's diarrhea. Typically, traveler's diarrhea is caused either by a virus or by uh, some other self-limited infection does not usually require antibiotics. And what they found was that of the 70-some-odd patients that returned from, from overseas with, this, with diarrhea, a high percentage, over 70%, actually had C. diff. Mm-hmm. So then we say, well, how did that happen? And the explanation actually comes from patients that come and visit Dr. Ronetto and I in the office. They come to our office. They say to us, you know what? I'm going on the trip of my dreams. I'm going to Asia. I'm going to Europe. I'm going to South America, wherever it might be. And we say to them, you know what, the best thing to do to keep your your stomach straight and keep you with less abdominal pain, discomfort, changes in your bowels, is take a probiotic. Take a probiotic two weeks before the duration of your trip. Take it two weeks after. We say to them, eat as carefully as you possibly can. Make sure that you eat in reputable places. The office is about to end, and the patient looks you in the eye and says, may I have an antibiotic? (laughs) That's the most exactly. time. And most of us say, okay but only take the antibiotic if you have 72 hours of sustained changes in bowel habits. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when people go overseas? They get on an airplane. They're on the airplane 7, 10, 12 hours, whatever it might be. They get dehydrated. And then they get to where they're going, and they change what they eat. One of the things of traveling is enjoying the local foods. Of course you're going to have changes in bowel habits. But if they get some changes in bowel habits they immediately take medications like the antibiotics that we give them to avoid problems when they're overseas. And that certainly is a risk factor. So my point is we need to think about this infection in a lot of different patients. And at this point, most patients that present with chronic diarrhea or an acute onset of diarrhea probably warrant a C. difficile toxin assay or a stool study for C. difficile. 
Correct. I agree with you with that. And and that's exactly what the doctors were discussing uh, at one of the conferences was um, any kind of um, presenting with any kind of abdominal uh, distress and um, the stool, uh, the the abdominal distress and the loose stool to go ahead and do a C. diff testing. And you mentioned about the over 65 age group and the C. diff Foundation has a hotline, uh, which is one eight four four three six seven two three four three, and the triage nurses take call and we have received calls. It's from pediatrics to geriatrics. Uh, there are more pediatric patients and um, two-year-olds, three-year-olds uh, who are being diagnosed with C. difficile. So the over 65 maybe was years ago, uh, but not anymore. Maybe perhaps because of the community acquired or, or because of the antibiotic use. Do you either one have something that you want to go on with that? Sure. Well, yeah. I, would, I just wanted ahead, to uh, uh, repeat essentially something that Dr. Um, Foyerstedt was talking about, and you also, Nancy, pointed at. Um, we use empiric antibiotics a lot for patients who have diarrhea, and sometimes the patients use them on their own, or sometimes when they're like in a trip, like in that situation, or sometimes they go to like an urgent care center, and no stool test is done, and they simply get ciprofloxacin. And this happens in emergency rooms, urgent care centers everywhere. People have a very high threshold for ordering a stool analysis, which should be, I think, ordered a lot more often to prevent not only that patient from getting worse, but also that patient from spreading the infection. Exactly. Uh, And Dr. Onetto, what is most important for someone to do to prevent a recurrence with a C. diff infection? Right. I would say, I mean, we get this question all the time when a patient has been treated successfully, hopefully. Um, The main thing is what we were talking about, antibiotics, and also communicating that to other doctors. Sometimes a patient has had C. diff, and when they go see their primary doctor, the primary doctor is not aware that they had C. diff, or another doctor that they see is not aware that they had C. diff. It's important to let your doctor know that you had C. diff in the past, because that is a very high risk. That's a risk factor for a recurrence. So if you let your doctor know, yes, I had C. diff before, that doctor will probably think twice before giving you antibiotics, maybe giving, give you an antibiotic uh, course that's a little shorter or pick an antibiotic that, re- that presents a lower risk. Uh, proton pump inhibitors we were talking about also before. Now, I have to say, and I'm sure Dr. Foyerstead experiences this also, patients ask very frequently whether there's something in their diet that they should change to prevent the recurrence of C. diff and whether or not probiotics are helpful in preventing uh, C. diff. And I would be very interested in hearing your, your answer, but in short, uh, in, in terms of the diet, I don't believe that there's a diet that we should be recommending. We should not recommend a restriction of the patient's diet beyond a balanced, healthy diet. And with probiotics, there's been some controversy. There are a number of different studies, particularly on uh, Saccharomyces boulardii, and I'd be interested in knowing you know, what you're telling your patients, Dr. Feuerstedt. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's a really important question. I think in terms of diet, I completely agree with you. You know, if somebody's having really severe diarrhea, I would recognize something like the uh, brat diet, bananas, rice, etc. cetera. Uh, but most, most importantly, I typically tell patients exactly what you just said, which is continue on your regular diet because there really is minimal that the diet has an impact on. 
In terms of the probiotics, I think that's a bit more of a hot-button topic, and it's clear that the answer is unclear, meaning that there have been multiple efforts to try to show whether probiotics are either helpful or not helpful. Saccharomyces boulardii was the only probiotic to show any reduction in recurrence, and that was a study from the late 1990s where recurrence rates went from about, uh, I think it was 65% to about 30% in in the in the population that was studied but what's the problem with all these probiotic studies is really that there aren't enough patients in the study and the interventions are not well tracked so they weren't quite as well organized as we'd like and there have been a number of follow-up studies that have not shown a benefit of using something like Saccharomyces boulardii with that being said I consider a probiotic to be safe and it's generally recognized as safe by the FDA Therefore, in the vast majority of patients that I treat with C. difficile infection, I will recommend that they, that they take a probiotic, and I will recommend at minimum that they take it for the three months because, like I said before, I think that that is sort of the hallmark of making sure that a patient doesn't have a recurrence. But right. that is data-driven. And then the one population that I would never give a probiotic to is the intensive care unit population because there have been reports in a number of case series that have shown that when probiotics are used in patients who are in the intensive care unit with C. difficile infection, there is a significant risk of fungemia. But the fungemia or fungus in the, in the blood, meaning that the probiotic actually got into the blood, was not shown in the patients that were actually being administered or receiving the probiotic, it was in all the other patients in the ICU. So as a general epidemiology or safety of a group of patients in the hospital, we don't typically recommend that we, that we administer probiotics to an intensive care unit population. So that would be one population I would avoid them in. Okay. Well, this is all great information to know, and we will just, um, I just wanted to say one thing, and that's uh, on the C. diff foundation, we do have a registered dietitian available, um, Karen Factor, who has her master's in nutrition, and is working actually on a diet with the C. diff survivors uh, on what worked for them to get them through the challenges. The C. nutrition is a major challenge during this infection. And as we say to the patients, it's an infection and no two bodies will react the same to any diet. So like you said, the brat diet to start with, clear liquid diet for only three days. Um, and to actually, it's, it's almost like the, the FODMAP. Um, Karen was discussing once about low residue, low fiber, you know, cooked vegetables, no raw vegetables, no raw fruit, and also there's something with the carbohydrates and sugar that also aggravates the bowel um, during this, you know, during the infection treatment time. So there's a lot more to be investigated and researched when it comes to the dietitian uh, and the dietary needs to avoid the malnutrition that can develop with disinfection. Uh, as I'm sure the both of you have seen. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take another pause um, for a quick commercial break. And when we return, uh, we'll continue our discussion on C. difficile infection, the what, where, and how with Dr. Zonetto and Dr. Feuerstadt. Please stay tuned and we'll be right back.
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Join us on September 20th in Atlanta, Georgia for the 4th Annual International Raising C. diff Awareness Conference and Health Expo. Visit the C. diff Foundation website at cdifffoundation.org for event details or contact the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 for additional information. Again, the website is cdifffoundation.org. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff spores and more, and we welcome back our listeners joining us today. We would also like to welcome back our doctors, Dr. Onetto and Dr. Feuerstadt. And before break, we were discussing the foods and the dietitian and the um, specific treatments that can be used to prevent recurrence of C. difficile. And Dr. Onetto, would you like to pick it up with um, and let us know how is the first episode of C. difficile the most commonly treated when they're first sure. diagnosed? Sure. So the first thing, well, once we have the diagnosis of C. diff colitis, we have to try to determine if this is a mild or moderate disease, severe or really severe complicated or fulminant disease. So for ambulatory patients, generally speaking, we're talking um, mild to moderate or severe patients, and we try to make the determination considering a number of things. Uh, the presence of fever, for example, abdominal pain, many, many, many bowel movements a day, like more than 10 bowel movements a day uh, would put the patient into in the severe category. And um, depending on that, also the, the increase in the white blood cell counts, white blood cells go up with infections, and when they go up a lot, it means that the body is really fighting a very difficult war. So in, in terms of that first decision, for patients who have mild to moderate colitis, um, the first-line treatment is still considered metronidazole or flagyl. And for patients who have severe disease, the first-line treatment is vancomycin. Um, having said all that, I personally do not use really a metronidazole for a first-line treatment um, for a few reasons. One of them has to do with 
side effect profile, metronidazole is not very well tolerated. For a lot of patients, it gives them uh, fatigue and nausea, and they have trouble taking the medication. They uh, find that they feel better in some ways, but worse in some other ways. Also, one cannot drink alcohol. When metronidazole, I have a number of young patients for, for whom this is an important restriction. Um, and in terms of recurrence rate, it seems like vancomycin has a lower recurrence rate. Uh, so I, I, I stay away really from metronidazole in my, in my practice. I have to say one thing that will get me in trouble, and uh, that's about something that um, I heard at a conference I went to recently, and somebody in the audience asked one of the experts, the question was, uh, is it still okay to treat the first episode of C. diff with metronidazole? And the expert answered, sure, metronidazole is okay for your mother-in-law. But if you're treating your mother, get the vancomycin. And I thought it, it, it was right. sort of a crude way of putting it. But it's hard to make a good case for metronidazole except for the issue of cost, which is an important issue. But that's the main reason, I believe, at this point that, we, that still metronidazole stays as a, as a first-line therapy. Instead of, um, like, over in the... vancomycin. Right, or even yeah. trying the fidaxomycin as the first. Or fidaxomycin, absolutely. Right. Fidaxomycin is instead also of very first, expensive. instead of last, and that always seems to fall on the bottom rung. That's right. Right, I, I take a little bit of a different uh, spin. I completely agree with metronidazole. I, I very, very rarely use it because recurrence rates are unacceptably high at this point, and side effect profile is 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 very, very high also. Um, the the way that I look at patients is based on the guideline recommendations, which is what uh, Dr. Onetto uh, outlined based on mild, moderate versus severe. But I also consider patients based on age. Uh, if you're 50 and younger and you present with C. difficile infection, I predominantly will start with vancomycin. If you're 50 and over and you have less than three risk factors for recurrence, I typically consider vancomycin. As the, as the first-line therapy, if you have over three risk factors for recurrence, I would consider fidaxomycin because when you consider cost-benefit and risk of recurrence, fidaxomycin in large clinical trials has shown to have a reduced recurrence rate, statistically significantly reduced recurrence rate over vancomycin. So in that select population, I might consider using fidaxomycin first. Well, the guidelines and the recommendations that the both of you have um, shared with the listeners is definitely um, information that can be used for both the clinicians and the patients, and thank you both for that one. Um, we do wanted to ask uh, the how much, how do you, each of you handle reoccurrences with your patients, um, say they've been already been on the three uh, the three, you know, rounds of Vanco. Then what? Oh, multiple recurrences. Exactly. After, mm-hmm. after I, I don't know at what point. You know, we all have different ways of of uh, addressing the issue of multiple recurrences. I start having that conversation after a third or a fourth episode of C diff. And, um, you know, like all things in medicine, it sort of depends um, when to bring up the, issue, the possibility of doing a fecal transplant. I do like to bring it up not too late because the patient has to also do sometimes a little bit of reading about it, talk to their family, and it does take some time to screen patients for it. But I would consider 
One thing is, of course, the number of recurrences, as you mentioned, Nancy, but also the extent to which the patient has responded to antibiotics. There are patients who don't have a complete response clinically to antibiotics, uh, who are refractory. Also, there are patients who have each of these episodes is really severe. So they are um, admitted for it. They get dehydrated. They're losing weight. So in those cases, I try to bring, uh, bring up the option of fecal transplant a little bit earlier. And, and that's wonderful that you do that in an early stage um, because we are seeing positive uh, results in a promising treatment that would um, rectify and cure the patient from this infection. And um, Dr. Forrest, would you also like to um, sure. discuss? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. I, you know, one, one thing that sort of goes in the middle here, which is, well, what happens if the patient fails the first therapy? And it, typically what I do is I do a progression. If they received vancomycin, I typically will switch and give them fidaxomycin. If they receive fidaxomycin, I typically will give them vancomycin. But after you flip-flop, after the second episode, typically the third episode is where I start to have the con- the discussion with a patient about fecal transfer or fecal transplant. And that is obviously the process where we take stool from a healthy adult and a healthy individual and replace those bacteria that can fight the C. difficile in somebody who has the infection. And that is done in a number of different ways. But I usually will will discuss that with the patients at the time of the third episode, saying we will try something called a vancomycin taper, which is commonly used, but if you start to get symptoms through the vancomycin taper or you finish the vancomycin taper and you recur again, that is where typically I will institute a fecal transplant. Okay, and, and that's a, a really... Are there any set guidelines at this time? Yes, there's uh, multiple guidelines that recommend this. The American Journal of Gastroenterology, which is the official journal of the American College of Gastroenterology in 2013, published in their guidelines that if you've had three or more recurrences, you are indicated for fecal microbiota transplantation. In the European guidelines that were published in February of 2014, they made a similar recommendation. So this is not something that's recommended to be used for initial infection or even first or potentially second recurrence, but really after you've had three recurrences and antibiotics have failed on at least three occasions. Yes. I find, uh, Dr. Foy said, I don't know if this is your experience also, that a lot of times the patients are the ones who come up with this. It's not even another doctor who says maybe you should have a fecal transplant, but the patients who are really running out of options in this time of the Internet where patients find information online, they seem to a lot of times be the first ones to think about this option. You completely agreed, actually, and there's a lot of resources available, including the American Gastroenterological Association, or the AGA, has a registry of people who perform fecal transplant. So if somebody is in an area that's uh, underserved or they're not aware of somebody who might be able to help them with their infection and they've had several recurrences and they don't feel like they're getting better, they might be able to go to gastro.org and and search for somebody who might be regionally available to help them to do this fecal transplant. Typically, when patients come to me uh, for a second opinion or even a third opinion, you're right. They actually already know about fecal transplant, and they are usually indicated for it at that point. 
Exactly. And the um, IT department just put the AGA website link that takes them right to the physician um, location for fecal transplant on the CDF Foundation's uh, website under fecal microbiota transplant. So that'll also help, you know, help the listeners locate uh, a doctor and physicians that are participating in this um, promising treatment to cure C. difficile infections. And I, unfortunately, we're, we were out of time. And at this time, I just want to thank you both, Dr. Onetto and Dr. Forrestat, for joining us today and delivering all this wonderful information to our worldwide listeners. And we hope to have you back to continue this um, wonderful conversation and discussion on how to help people understand the what, where, and how of a C. difficile infection. Um, we will continue, you know, next week. And uh, we hope you join us again for another episode of C. Spores and more. And we thank you very much for joining us. And no one can do this alone. All of us can do this together. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at cloroxhealthcare.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.